Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is no exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in a spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. I ask the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. I'm here to make a public statement. Australia is back on track. I actually find it gobsmacking. Just dumbstruck. I'm going to shirt front, Mr Putin. I want to thank uh, that fellow down under. I don't think I know. I have no hesitation. That should cause great concern. Just sit down. Let's stick in your eyes. You're a classic space invader. A social climbing sycophant. He needs a mirror. I mean... <laughs> Fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Nice of democracy, very good. <laughs> Howdy and welcome to Democracy Sausage. I'm Mark Kenny from the ANU School of Politics and International Relations and the Australian Studies Institute. Thanks to the great audience we had on campus last week for our joint live recording of Democracy Sausage and Policy Forum Pods. It was such a wonderful experience and I so enjoyed meeting many DS listeners and, and even having a podcast beer or two afterwards. Now... Next week is the final week of this tawdry election campaign, and we will have another live Democracy Sausage uh, event then as well. So uh, Dr. Maria Taflaga will have some interesting people in that in, in that podcast. One of them is uh, among the country's most eminent political scientists, apart from yourself, that is. Oh, no, no, no. Judith Brett is definitely um, more eminent than me. No, no, no competition there. Yes, I'm looking forward to it. I think it's going to be fantastic, and I, I hope to see a big crowd. Yes, well, I mean, Judith Brett's written so widely about Australian politics. In fact, I think her most recent book is called Doing Politics, and it's a whole whole lot of things are covered there. But, but she's you know written really brilliantly about uh, the history of the Liberal Party and um, and biography of Alfred Deakin. Uh, she's she understands in the historical sense uh, the notion of um, minority parliaments, uh, Deakin's attitude to. To, to compromise and what he thought about that in terms of improving legislative outcomes and so forth. So in the context of this election, I think it's a really she can make a really useful contribution to our understanding of what lay before the Australian people. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, the other exciting thing about um, Judith Brett's expertise, of course, at this juncture in uh, in our politics is that she is probably the premier scholar on um, the history of the Liberal Party and it's um, and we'll have, I think, really interesting to, things to say about its potential future directions and how that might 
you know, um, interact with the agenda that is being brought by, uh, you know, more liberal forces from the teal independence and more radical right forces, um, sort of from the little galaxy of parties on the on the right fringe from from Palmer, One Nation, and, and the Lib Democrats. So I think it'll be a fantastic discussion. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's a very good point actually, because the history of the Liberal Party is, you know, seems to be at a at a bit of a hinge point at the moment. Someone made the point to me on Twitter just this morning that it's interesting that the Liberal Party, having so so conscientiously denied the idea of uh, affirmative action uh, in its uh, pre-selection processes and having pre-selected so few women, is now under threat from a range of women. It seems to be, as this person said, you know, they're one of their greatest weaknesses going into this election. So, yeah, quite a quite a fascinating juncture. Of course, we'll know the verdict of of voters on some of those big questions in not too long. Uh, and uh, who knows? Maybe maybe the party will be electorally vindicated for its position, or maybe uh, maybe the reckoning is coming. We'll, uh, we'll we'll know soon enough. Also joining us next week is our great friend on this podcast, Sky News chief anchor Kieran Gilbert. Kieran's a wonderful journalist and an adroit observer of Australian politics. So it'll be a big final campaign show. Get along there if you can. There will be democracy sausages and drinks before the pod. That's at 5.30 to 7.30 on Wednesday of next week. And uh, I'm sure you know where to go to um, register for that. People are registering quite quickly. So um, uh, there will be limited places and uh, it's the place to be midway through the final week of this, uh, as I say, somewhat tawdry election campaign. Today, though, I'm super glad to also have us have with us again Professor Frank Bongiorno from the School of History here at ANU. Frank, welcome back. Oh, thanks, Mark. It's lovely to be back. A regular on democracy sausage. Now, the third debate is virtually upon us. Uh, by the time people are listening to this, it will uh, either be about to happen or have just happened. You must be looking forward to the clash of ideas, the smorgasbord of rich policy choices put before a keen and adventurous electorate. Well, indeed, and we had such a wonderful foretaste of it in the second debate, didn't we? It was. Um, it was a high point of uh, <laughs> of intellectual discourse. I've never been so happy to hear my baby cry, so I had to leave. <laughs> it was a bit like a couple of babies crying, really. Um, <laughs> that would have been more enjoyable. <laughs> yeah. well, at least they know what they want. I mean, you know, they, 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 they're clear about their intentions, babies, when they're crying, at least. It's not, there's not so much ambiguity, I would have thought. Um, it, it This was a debate where so often it was the stuff that was studiously being not said or, you know, sort of, strategically avoided, commitments not made, uh, firm statements uh, sidestepped and so forth. I mean, it's, it's, it's astonishing really how elections are so much about risk in a sense, so much about problem avoidance, Frank. Well, this one certainly has been and I, I guess Labor's still very haunted, isn't it, by 2019. Um, but of course, you know, the, the situation is very different at the moment. Labor, um, yes, they were ahead in the polls then, but they're much further ahead in the polls this mm. time around. And Morrison is carrying a lot more lead in the saddlebags. And uh, I think that was quite evident the other night. I mean, the format was interesting. And I, I presume that it was, um, well, obviously acceptable in the end to both sides. Um, if it was driven by Morrison and Morrison's side, I suspect it was a misjudgment, miscalculation. Uh, 
They may have imagined that 60-minute bites would suit Scotty from marketing, you know, someone who, you know, is, is, is a, can be a direct communicator when he puts his mind to it. But my sense is what it did was it, it, it actually brought the Prime Minister kind of back. Um, it, it, it undermined or undercut um, the kind of gravitas and authority that, that an incumbent and a Prime Minister can potentially bring to a, an occasion like that. And it, it produced a, the kind of scrappy affair that I suspect opposition leaders actually prefer in a situation like that, and certainly when they're ahead as, as, as Albanese is at the moment. It was extremely indignant, wasn't it? I mean, the whole thing had a feel of like a a game show, right? Where like the loser would be pushed into a a tank of sharks and the winner (laughs) would be chased off the stage at the end by crocodiles, right? (laughs) (laughs) It was was absolutely farcical and and debate is such a generous word (laughs) Uh, because, you know, like the sort of the time limit which they they weren't really able to enforce was, was, I think, against our ability to learn anything or or be informed in in any kind of way. And and it was sub-mental, basically. It was interesting, like Morrison kind of really raced through his – uh, whatever he was trying to say, and it, he was talking so quickly, it was so difficult to understand and pass what he was trying to say. I actually found like, it, yeah, it was like a blur, right? And whilst Albanese kind of struggled to finish a point, I, I, I do remember. And sometimes to start one. Well, exactly, exactly. Like I do at least remember what he was trying to say because it was slow enough. I mean, yeah, yeah, there was plenty I, of time. I, I honestly think that is the worst debate we have ever seen and um and I, it really has i think thrown the the sky debate where real people got to ask questions of actual substance into really positive um relief like i just i just thought that the the press pack asking what i thought were in the main a rather trivial and self-indulgent grandstanding set of questions it was just a sorry day for for journalism and for Australian democracy. I just, yeah. Well, I, it, it raises the question of the usefulness of the debates. I mean, people go on as if there's some sort of ancient tradition. I mean, the first one was 1984, and even then I don't think it was maintained through the 80s. If I remember rightly, it was abandoned again in, in 87, I think. Yeah, I think Hawke um, at one stage yeah. decided, well, I, I'm the Prime Minister, I don't need to do debates. Indeed, yeah. and, and I do wonder about the value of them. Um, they're not a natural fit for a Westminster system anyway, and in fact they've become redundant to the extent that, you know, you've got the two parties up there, and we know that that in a couple of weeks' time, probably somewhere around a minimum of one in four voters for the House of Representatives is going to be voting for someone else. I mean, is that really? a fit and proper way to to present politics to party leaders up the front? What about everyone else? Well, I suppose, although it, it always seems to me that, you know, this is one of the one of the problems we have in our electoral system. It's, you know, one of its strengths and its weaknesses as well, and that is that it is a two-party preferred system. And whatever these people, wherever they vote, by and large, except for in, in a few cases, a few exceptional seats where third parties get up, People are sending their vote to either the Labor Party or the Coalition. That's the reality of it. That's, That's where their votes yeah. end up. So when people say, "I, I don't like, uh, I don't like Morrison," uh, and then, you know, you see all these vox pops, which in- mm. interestingly uh, have endless numbers of older white men saying, "I'm going to stick with Morrison," and everyone else 
you know, mostly saying they want change, mm. which is interesting in itself. I think it's very interesting. It, it is. I mean, and it may well be the story of this election that, mm. that there is just such a clear gender divide. But, mm. but just going back to the point for a moment, you, you often hear people say, oh, I don't like Morrison, don't trust him, don't like him. And the questioner says, so what do you think of Albanese? Oh, no, I'm thinking I'm going to vote for someone else. I want to put someone else mm. in. Well, they're not. These aren't constituents of, uh, you know, Cook or Grindler, which are the two electorates in mm. which you get to vote directly for the prime ministers. These yeah. are constituents in Wentworth or Chisholm or wherever it might be. And so, what they're talking about in practice is whether they are going to where their vote is going to get, end up, whether their second or mm. third preference is going to be the one that counts in in that race. And it will be going to either a Labor person or a Liberal person in the metropolitan area, save for the possibility of some, mm. you know, few independents. That's the, that's the reality. And so in a sense, that's why we have the Prime Ministers in a debate because they are the two people mm. who conceivably, only two people who conceivably can come out of this as Prime Minister. I mean, I agree. It's, it's you know, in, in in a real sense, it's still a kind of two horse race, but it's also a reinforcing two horse race, isn't it? I mean, if Absolutely. if all of our practices and institutions basically just assume that there's kind of two sides and two arguments to be, uh, you know, sort of put out there, well, um, we, we're kind of going to end up with, uh, well, in fact, we're not going to end up because it's quite clear that there's a revolt going on at the moment against that. Um, mm. It's been going on for some years and. One of the most interesting things to look at after the 21st of May will be just how deep that revolt is. I mean, at the moment, yeah, it's still three in four are voting for the major parties at uh, House elections. Uh, it'll be very interesting to see whether it's still one in four or whether it's actually, I think it's about 23% actually, if I remember rightly, from the last Australian election study or um, the stats we had last time. But uh, anyway, we'll, we'll see what, what happens. I mean, I, I take the point that it, it is still two, a two-horse race and in, in the end, most voters do have to choose one or the other. Yeah, I mean, I look, I, I, I agree with both with, with both of what you you said, but it like it is in the major parties' self-interest to... To lock to lock in that um, two party dynamic because it, it suits them. You know they don't they don't actually want to uh, govern in minority. They want to govern in majority, right? Like they they already you know often forget about the Senate and run into trouble there, and they don't want to be doing that in the lower house if they uh, can avoid it. I mean, I think what is kind of interesting is the that there is a growing kind of discourse and awareness. Around the fact that the coalition is a coalition, yes, and I think this is yes. all to the. So we already have thought. a minority government, precisely. <laughs> and and uh, I mean, the, I think there's and, only and been- just to be clear on that, the point you're making there is the Liberal Party doesn't have a majority in its own right anywhere near. No, it. no, and they haven't actually. They've only su- succeeded in having a majority in their own right twice. Uh, I think uh, once in '77. Or seventy-five, and I think when Abbott was elected, so it might have been three times. It might have been seventy-five, seventy-seven, and uh, twenty thirteen. But otherwise, they have always needed um, the National Party to to govern. Like that's just a fact. That's right. And even in those occasions when they could have done it by themselves, they've still gone gone into coalition arrangements because that is mm. that is the product. And then they sell this myth. Uh, pretty convincingly, obviously, because everyone sort of accepts the shorthanding of it that uh, that it's a you know a that it's not a minority government that it's a you know a unified sort of single party thing called the coalition. But the coalition, as we know, is an agreement, a secretive agreement, 
that's one of the things that Barnaby Joyce is most proud of, he says. Um, a secretive agreement between two parties for power sharing where they hand out ministries, they, they trade away policies, they, they agree not to pursue certain policy directions, uh, all, as I say, done secretly uh, between two parties <laughs> and, and then they somehow get away with this myth that it's you know, total mm. stability and all, all, all unity. Well, that's right. And I think what is actually really interesting about the, the coalition relationship between um, the Liberal Party and the National Party is that, you know, it used to be kind of done on a handshake. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I think once Malcolm Turnbull became Prime Minister, Barnaby insisted on a written agreement. And, and that, that, I think, signals a, a, an important kind of shift I guess, a lack of gentleman's trust between the two leaders and perhaps um, a recognition that uh, their interests may be diverting and diverging somewhat. I mean, a a long-term trend that isn't really discussed or acknowledged um, or understood in, you know, the dynamics of politics on the centre-right is that the, the Liberal Party has actually for a long time had greater regional representation than any other party, including the Nationals, that the Nats increasingly hold uh, rural seats or seats that are majority rural. Um, and and there is this, you know, we've all heard this sort of reference to the Barnaby line, which I think is quite cute. Um, but, you know, that's another kind of fissure in that um, voting base between the people who grow stuff and have farms and own them as their family and the sort of mega corporations that run large uh, agri businesses or you know corporations that have large mining concerns or or or, or, or you know thermal energy operations um and um you know and the nats have been under pressure for a, for a long time and i bet frank would actually have a lot to say on this you know it's it's not a new phenomena but their ability i guess to to kind of keep even this sort of rural constituency together is is starting to come under pressure. Yeah, what what happened to the old country party, Frank? I mean, <laughs> didn't they used to represent farmers? Now they seem to represent miners. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I guess the overall importance of of farm exports has declined dramatically in terms of its its significance to the economy in the last 30, 40 years. And, um, you know, no, well, in, indeed, even the old country party, uh, it couldn't, Basically, win seats on the votes of farmers and their families. It was always a um, a party of both the town and yeah. and, and the hinterland. So, yeah, so yeah. it's about reg- regional economies and, yeah. and and all of that. Yeah, yeah that's true. But uh, yeah. it's, it does feel like the 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 party of the cocky, as it were, mm. is is now. Or you know, if you believe Matt Canavan, who fronts up with coal mm. dust all over his face and high yeah. vis and yeah. and all that. I mean, and 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 they they've they've sort of staked their their position against climate change, by and large, Canavan particularly thinks uh, global warming is dead, uh, net zero is dead anyway, um, and and yet this is this is antithetical to the interests of people who work the land and who rely on <laughs> rely on climate, uh, a predictable climate, to actually be able to do it. Yeah, I mean the, the National Party's proven a very resilient party in terms of its organisation, um, absolutely, which is quite. Striking. I mean, you know, I remember when I was living in New England and Northern New South Wales, you know, 20 years ago, uh, all of our local seats, state and federal, were held by independents. Uh, 
And, you know, you did sort of wonder sometimes, is, you know, is the National Party going to survive? Well, the answer, of course, is that it did. Uh, it came back very strongly, actually, at state politics in the 2011 election. But, yeah, the kinds of conflicts and tensions that you're talking about, Mark, are there and they're not going to go away. And I think as the, the climate issue just becomes more and more pressing, they're going to become more difficult for the National Party to manage and they're going to come under pressure. The kind of pressure, in fact, that we're seeing in Nichols at the moment with Rob Priestley, where, yeah. you know, that is a very strong independent campaign. I was driving through Shep, Shepparton. Yeah, this uh, is in central northern Victoria. Victoria, yeah. and his face is everywhere. He clearly yeah. has significant local business uh, um, support. Support. He, he's not taking uh, climate uh, two hundred money. Um, this is, you know, this is a serious candidature, and it'll be very interesting. It's, it's also in a seat that has been willing to shift around over the years. It's returned both Liberals and Nationals, including the the uh, the, the moderate Sharman Stone, a Liberal mm, some mm. years ago, followed by Damien Drum. Uh, so it'll be very interesting to see what happens. Fremantle Dockers, yeah, yeah. long play going a bit further back. So it'll be yeah. interesting to see what happens. Yeah. Yeah, well, the other thing, and I guess this goes to your point, Maria, about about uh, the, the Nats and Frank's point about their success is that in, a, in one way it's not that surprising that they're successful because they've negotiated themselves a pretty damn good outcome for their relatively small sliver of the vote. If you compare their sliver of the vote nationally with the Greens, the Greens do better, but the Nats end up with a whole lot more seats because of where their voters yeah. are concentrated. And then they, they've got this fantastic deal where they end up with a deputy prime ministership and four or five cabinet ministers. Uh, that's a lot of clout for a relatively small wedge of the national vote. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, you know, and, and, and part of that is um, a path dependent. Um, yeah, because there was a time when the Nats would deliver like 23, 25 seats in a smaller parliament, right? Um, so they were a really powerful and, and significant um, force. And to sort of, I mean, Frank would know this story. Uh, when the when the, the coalition lost government in 1972, there was a dispute over who was the second most important person in the opposition. Um, was it the deputy liberal leader or the leader of the National Party? And the National Party leader won that one quite decisively and got a better closet-sized office um, than his colleague. Um, but, you know, I mean... <laughs> in, the yeah, old, yeah. in the old parliament house, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Exactly. And and something that Frank has um, forgotten that he knows, I think, which I'm pretty sure he told me, um, was that um, you know that the the country party and its success relies on uh, its deep roots in civil society, right? Mm -hmm. The civil society of which goes to the point the bush, he was making yeah. about, yeah, exactly about New England. And I guess that's actually what is kind of really interesting about these voices of movements i'm talking about the original ones and you know these campaigns these independent campaigns that you see every now and again this is like in indi for example which actually yes. borders on to nickels um as, yes as exactly was just talking about yeah exactly and one of the things that we don't understand as political scientists and there is actually a, a, an arc project that is has is is in the field right now so hopefully they will kind of be able to provide some answers on this um um, but one of the things we don't really understand is, um, you know, w what is actually going on at the sort of civil society uh, level in these communities? Like, is it is it that there are different people organising? Uh, or are these people who, who, you know, used to be part of the National Party fold, 
and have effectively just sort of switched their allegiance. And, you know, should the sort of national conditions improve or a better local candidate emerge, et cetera, you know, they'll return to the fold, you know. So it's another way of sort of saying, like, are these communities sort of changing um, to the point where the, the National Party is unable to kind of reconcile its, its sort of fragmenting constituency, um, you know, and are we sort of seeing like pretty much all three of our parties are honestly actually undergoing a significant um, amount of dislocation because there is major, you know, sort of demographic, demographic, that's the word, yeah, shifts um, kind of underway in society, some of them driven by um, technology, many of them accelerated by COVID, and, and that's sort of what we can sort of see happening to, to the Liberal Party. You know, uh, if, if, if Morrison loses this, loses government, and um, labor uh, labor government is installed either in minority or majority. Like it is revenge of the elites, you know, um, a group that the coalition has really made hay on kind of maligning um, for a good twenty five years now. And I think there is an irony in that. Mm. Yeah. Let's uh, take a quick break and be back in a moment. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. Now, we were just discussing the Nats before, which was uh, not something I had uh, in mind to be discussing at, at that sort of length, but a you know, very interesting discussion we've been having. Uh, and uh, Marie, you finished off making the point about you know the message that will have to be taken by Liberals if, if they get shuffled off uh, into history by the voters at this election and judging and I'm not suggesting that you can do this, but I'm just sort of making a, a speculative point here that judging by the enthusiasm we see for people voting on the first day of pre-poll voting, which was yesterday as we record this, uh, there's a lot of eagerness to get out there and vote. And this can't be all people who are not going to be around on polling day. These are people who perhaps they just hate the bloody election campaign so much they figure once i've voted i've i've done my duty and i can just avoid all this crap for you know for the next two weeks i remember when i was at melbourne uni in the 80s at uh, student election time they, there was a badge you could buy that had two fingers sticking up saying yes i voted for you and now could be a bit like that. it could be a bit like that you know <laughs> well i mean 
in my uh, student days, the, the the batch was a little less genteel, Frank. It was just <laughs> just a single moment. digit, oh, right? No, just the words. Right? We were more genteel yes. in the eighties, Maria. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Innocent exactly. days. It, got, yeah, it yeah. got more textual after that. Yeah, that's yeah. right. That's right. That's right. Co- the coarsening. Yeah. 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 We we know that pre-poll um, numbers they, they actually have been increasing um, year on year, and um, the major parties hate it. Uh, I like it. it. Pre- it pre- yeah, it presents um, for them. It presents like a logistical problem of being able to staff pre polling. Yeah, um, they can get places. staffed. Frankly, I agree. <laughs> you know, like whatever. Um, um, but yes, I. I mean, look, we don't actually, as far as I'm aware, I don't think we have good data on who actually pre polls. But you know, my assumption, my hunch, my testable hypothesis, I suppose, um, would be that it's actually people who are pretty certain of the. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're decided, like, you know, they're either... Yeah, they're, um, not, they're, they're not swinging voters. And, and to yes, that extent, exactly. they may not be changing anything because if they are decided voters, you know, fixed fixed people who've, who've rusted onto one side or the other, then presumably that's the case two weeks from now uh, as much as it is now. That's the whole point about being fixed. Um, so when they vote doesn't actually change anything. But you would think just the level of enthusiasm around this, it, it, it may speak to a certain level of fatigue and that, that, that hope of just getting it done so that you can, you can literally watch Netflix without or whatever it is or, or, or you know, or do other things and just, just sort of blank some of this out because it is pretty bloody mind deadening. Yeah. Um, I think it's probably people who regard what they're doing as being more like a flush than a vote. <laughs> I was thinking about that in card terms for a moment, but you were nah. a bit more elementary uh, than that. Yeah. Uh, it was lavatoir, as my again. piano teacher used to call yeah. it, Mark. It was lavatoir humour. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Democracy, yeah. democracy in the S band. Yeah. Yeah. Oh dear. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like there will be. There's obviously will be a cohort of people who see the pre-polling place and feel certain enough. They might not be, um, or you know, like it crystallizes it for them in that moment and mm. they and they might go and vote but uh i mean i wouldn't be surprised if for uh, the um if you know for the political strategists this is the moment where they really feel they need to kind of knuckle down and uh, really start to quote unquote campaign because this is probably the point where undecided voters are um you know probably starting to kind of tune in because they know that they have to turn up to to vote um, but it, but it is interesting, yeah, that's right. But it is interesting that, as Frank, uh, well, I think maybe you made the point. I don't know um, that it's it's harder for the parties to, you know, uh, well, it's harder for the parties to have people there at every single booth, you know, handing out how to vote cards and 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 showing enough energy. It's even harder for the independents, the minor parties, who don't have party machines around them, which is one of the ways the system is rigged. But uh, but at the same time, it's uh, it's it's inevitable that this trend is going to increase because because um, people who voted last time uh, before the election, before the actual polling day, know they can do it, right? So most of them are going to go along and do it again. All you have to do is say, no, I'm not going to be available on, on polling day for whatever reason, uh, and you were given your vote. So I think you're going to see a number of people who've, who essentially now prefer to do it that way. And I think, as I've said on this pod before, it, it seems to me to be an appropriate quid pro quo for the compulsion to vote. I mean, Absolutely. we have a compulsory mm. system. We should, as a quid pro quo of that, make it as easy as possible for people to go and discharge that democratic duty, that civil duty. 
Yeah. And it makes a lot of sense at the moment in the pandemic too. I mean, the reality is you just do not know when you're going to be struck down. Uh, Mm. And uh, if you're healthy and you don't have it, uh, you know, there's perhaps good reason to go out and vote while you can. Just yeah, or if might you have it just, next week. Or yeah. if you can just yeah. go there and not queue up. I mean, yeah. they, some of those people that were queuing up yesterday probably thought they wouldn't have to queue up. That might have been why they'd gone along there, thought yeah. I'm going to avoid the queues on election day by yeah. by getting it done now. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, it seems to me to make a lot of sense. And it was I was interested to see um, uh, one journal yesterday uh, reporting uh, at the, at the um, pre-poll booth that all of the miners – uh, had uh, people handing out how to vote cards, so Palmer and and One Nation, uh, the Independents. This was in the ACT, I think. I suppose yeah. we have a, a more politically engaged populace, broadly mm. speaking, than than the rest of the country. Um, but nonetheless, e- everyone who was sort of in the, in in the market, uh, the electoral market, uh, had mm. people out there. So. I imagine that if, um, you know, like in the sort of teal seats or where these independent campaigns are, um, you know, uh, viable, I'm sure they do have plenty of volunteers ready to do it. I think in New South Wales, given like all the um, trauma that has that has afflicted the New South Wales Liberal Division, yeah, like I actually do wonder if they are struggling with personnel in some seats there's probably a lot of staffers you know or electoral office workers manning uh booths um if they can't get volunteers and that's actually one of the things that i would really like to get some greater insight on like what is actually happening in these party machines on the ground at the moment yes uh and and why do the parties uh why do they dislike early voting well for reasons we've we've spoken about but one of the other reasons is that they um, they don't want people going off and casting their votes before they've fired off their big shots in terms of policy announcements, the things that might attract voters. Now, Frank, I wonder, was that in Labor's mind going to an election launch at the third week rather than in, in a six-week campaign rather than leaving it later? I mean, the coalition still hasn't done its mm. official launch and that happens on the penultimate Sunday or the last Sunday, actually, of yeah. the of the six-week campaign. Yeah, well, I mean, it was... Tremendously interesting that Labor chose to do it in Perth, which is something that people have pointed out. And obviously this was a, I mean, not just a a very carefully calculated move, but something that had been planned to the nth degree, apparently, I read. Mm. Um, And I think that reflects a sense that, you know, there are real opportunities for the Labor Party to pick up seats over there. And doing so is probably critical, could be critical to, to to Labor being able to form a majority or perhaps even a minority government. So I think that had a lot to do with it, the choice of of, of, of where, to, where to do it. But yeah, I mean, Labor's uh, timing looks like it was planned very much for just ahead of the opening of polling, of pre-polling. I mean, um, it's, it's, it's odd in a way. I don't know the strategic thinking behind the, the coalition and uh, Morrison holding back in this way, uh, it looks like it's leaving it very late in the piece, uh, too late perhaps. Well, perhaps it's because they're not saying anything. I mean, yeah. let's let's face it, no one's saying much in this election campaign. Yeah. There's there's not much in the way of, you know, a big narrative direction. We don't have a, I mean, for a party that's coming uh, to the electron, election uh, with a plan for change, that being the opposition, we don't really have um, an imaginative 
picture of a future Australia. I mean, you know, oh, headland stuff. We got headland stuff. We got we got the vibe. It's <laughs> vibe. exactly the word that was coming to my mind as well. It, it's um, like they want to get elected on the vibe. Now, yeah. okay, the vibe is um, not unimportant in election campaigns. The overall idea of uh, you know social justice, of of lifting wages, of uh, having carers uh, uh, you know, properly remunerated, and 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 the sectors mm. being those care sectors being able to recruit people because the pay is, is 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 above subsistence, which is essentially where it is at the moment. Those sorts of things are are good, but they're not exactly they're not they're not sort of levers that are going to be pulled on day one. Ways in which the country is going to be different, and then, and they certainly don't answer that question. You remember that question that was asked of. Of uh, of Howard years ago, you know what 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 what's your what do you hope for for your country? And he came up with you know relaxed and comfortable, comfortable and relaxed. I think yeah. was the way he put it, which was pretty <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> hardly inspiring. But but we, we haven't got much more here. Yeah. No, no. I, I mean, look, you know what? Like as a political scientist and a concerned citizen, like I agree with everything you're saying. Um, you know, I, I I just think that it it would be important for citizens to be able to actually properly assess. Um, different parties' policy offerings, and it's a pity that we don't have manifestos like they do in in the UK and and other European democracies, where they all basically have to write it down and they publish it. Mm. Um, and and I mean, most of it is just you know dot points that leaders can or cannot list. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but but I think from a you know putting my kind of cynical political hat on. Um, the vibe is, you know, if you're a government uh, or a, a party that is about to inherit government in what is really um, uh, uh, uncertain times with a lot of um, uncertainty on the horizon, the vibe is probably a good thing for you as a government because voters know that you'll opt for social justice but you're not necessarily locked into you know some like legislated really expensive tax cuts you know that cost billions of dollars or anything except that anything you are. like that <laughs> exactly so yes i mean i think i think that um I'm sure they'll be grateful for the vibe, but you know, you never know. They might just turn around and do a hawk and say, "Oh my God, the world is like upside down. We're gonna, you know, float the dollar again." Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's the trouble. You can only float the dollar once uh, after oh, that. Right. Either sinks or swims on its on its own strength. Mm. Um, I mean, I suppose what Marie's saying though really opens up this point, Frank, and we're probably getting toward the end of this discussion. But but you know, has Labor done enough? Um, because mm. It is pretty clear that uh, Labor is running on the unpopularity of the government, basically, and 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 uh, it learned and perhaps overlearned, as 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 you made the point earlier on, uh, uh, the lesson of twenty nineteen, how not to sort of try and run the country from opposition. It's enough yeah. to get voters to actually change the government. You can't get them to change the government and dramatically change the country at the same time, you know, with mm -hmm. a whole bunch of other things on top. That seems to be the logic, but, you know, you can run silent, but is there a danger that you then run dead as well? Well, we don't know. Um, yes, uh, there's a shadow of the last election. Uh, I've kind of assumed for a couple of years uh, that what, um, Labor and Albanese have in mind is essentially the same approach that various state and territory Labor opposition leaders have pursued repeatedly, really. It's happened many times in the last 30 years, and that is 
uh, a low-profile um, uh, kind of um, small-target uh, approach that allows you to get into to office in a kind of unfussy way, where there's an unpopular, long uh, not even long-standing sometimes, but an unpopular uh, incumbent that people are kind of tired of. I mean, the blueprint was surely Brax, Steve Brax in Victoria in 1999, where he'd been, what, leader for about six months, hardly anyone could have recognised him in the street, but people were sick of the sight and sound of Jeff Kennett. Um, and, you know, there have been a number of examples of this. I think Palaszczuk's victory against Campbell Newman was another. And, you know, you could even go all the way back to Bob Carr in the mid-90s. Was there ever a less likely, uh, you know, sort of a popular <laughs> choice as premier, but a spectacle sort of intellectually doesn't like sports? Um, you know, and th- this has happened. And, and he fell over the line um, uh, against, a, 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 frankly, a, a coalition government that had become steadily unpopular as a result of its free market neoliberal type policies. So I kind of see that as probably what Albanese has in mind. The thing we don't know is whether you can do it federally because Labor, as far as I'm aware, has never done it federally. I mean, that's not how Labor has yes. won office from opposition in 19... Uh, it's not how it happened in 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 1972 or 83 or 2007. There was a much more distinct narrative-driven campaign with a more charismatic leader. That's not what we're seeing this time. Can it work? I don't know the answer. We'll know in two I, weeks. I remember you and I discussing yeah. this, I think, in the um, on the periphery of a press club event one time, and you made yeah. that point to me, and I thought mm. it sort of always stayed with me because I, I sort of ran the argument uh, that, that that Labor was going to, you know, have this um, – have this much more tightly disciplined, narrow, narrow-casted mm. message about um, about um, trying to make the election a referendum on the performance of the Morrison government. And I remember your response to me was, yes, but I don't recall Labor ever winning from opposition when it didn't make itself largely the story. Yeah. And the three you just mentioned, 72, 83 and 2007, are the only three times Labor has actually come from opposition into government since the Second World War. So. Exactly, yeah. And and look, it was the same in 1940 when Labor almost won government, actually. Mm. Um, uh, you know, basically it was a dead, a dead heat. Um, the, the story uh, was a, a resurgent Labor Party, really. So look, I mean, we'll see. Um, we just don't know at this stage. Uh, the Liberals have managed, or the Coalition has managed, I think, to slip into office in that way from from opposition, but Labor ha- has not managed to do so as a... And it may be as a party of reform, it's harder to just slip into office yeah, in that way. That's right. It may yeah. be that as a party yeah. of, your, of reform, yeah. you're expected to do yeah. something different uh, from uh, from a conservative party. Maria, what, yeah. what, what do you think that where, where does that leave? Let's just for a moment consider the possibility of Labor not winning here. They will have tried big target, if I can put it in that blunt term, in 2019, and they will have tw- tried, you know, the rigid discipline around a small target. Um, where would that leave them if they if if they fell short this time? Oh well, you know there'll be like some books about whether or not the Labor Party is going to disintegrate, and <laughs> you know what I mean. And and um Let's and go talk and to all, a publisher. Yeah. That's right, all the likes of that, and then um you know I mean look, this is the this is, I guess I want to make two points. The, the first is I I agree with with Frank and your analysis. I, the only thing I would say though is the conditions have never been more promising for, uh, I guess, Labor to sort of fall over the line in terms of winning. 
despite the campaign rather yes, than because yes, of it. Yes, yes, because they're against a prime minister whose goal is to is is who is to not have a legacy in essence. Mm. I mean, he has, he has literally said that. So you know, this this might be the only um, time where it could, could even have a, a hope in hell of of um, working. You know, and I and what I think is what kind of interesting was that you know Turnbull and Shorten were really well kind of matched as a pair, like they're the same kind of politician. And so the 2016 campaign was awful and turgid, but it was kind of civil and it was kind of fact based. Um, and Morrison and Albanese, like I think it's kind of interesting, like Albanese's reputation is as a pugilist, right? As a factional yeah, warrior. That's a very good point. Yeah. But you but know, we in don't this see campaign, it. yeah, in this campaign, and, and part of that I suppose is to do with just the sheer um, aggression or, or the sort of uh, the, the desire to dominate style of, of Morrison. He's, and in, he's I, sort of indefatigable, isn't he? There's, yeah. there's a little bit of Johnson around him as well, that sort of, you know, even when he's losing, he looks like he's winning. Yeah, though, you know, you can kind of see it sort of fraying around the, the edges as, you know, fortune really isn't um, cutting his way. And I do wonder if Albanese is is – in the same mold as as is Frank pointed out, the you know Brax Palaszczuk and and Kim and Carr, sorry not Kim Carr, Bob Carr, um, you know who all went on to lead long lived governments, you know which kind of goes to mm. the point that campaigning skills and governing skills are not the same, and um, it will be interesting to I mean I will say this for Albanese, I think broadly speaking he has picked the right tactics given like the the cards he was dealt with the pandemic and all of that like not 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 an easy um, hand to play and I think he has broadly speaking at a strategic level played um, those cards quite effectively and and there is a bit of luck on his side in the sense that nothing is really cutting the government's way. But yeah, if they do lose this election, well, I think a lot of people will resign uh, and retire from the party and there will be um, major renewal because I just, I mean, I mean, these guys have been out of office for 10 years now. You know, they're desperate to fix their legacy from the their, their, their botched job they did during the Rudd-Gillard years, mm-hmm. and the, you know, and, and to make amends for the hubris which essentially sent them down the path of destruction and rack and ruin. If, if Labor loses this election, Maria, one, one thing I can be absolutely certain of, there'll be a lot of openings in the polling industry for retired politicians. Yeah, yeah. Uh, exactly. Because if you think that Labor Party will be in crisis, the, 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 the public uh, opinion polling industry will be in an even deeper one, I suspect. Well, I've got to say yeah. as a final point that if Labor wins the election, Quite convincingly, which the polls at the moment do show Labor doing. There, there are a few people in my old profession who ought to have a damn good look at themselves as well, because the mm. performance of media. We haven't had time to discuss this, and mm. I suspect Maria will be talking about this a bit in the final week. But the performance mm. of media generally has been abysmal, in my view. It's the worst I've seen, and and what's more, I've spoken to a number of my colleagues, former colleagues in the in the gallery, who agree with that. Um, it has been incredibly shallow and uh and and sort of unreservedly partisan in many places and uh um you know i think it's just been a great disservice to democracy so with those inflammatory comments <laughs> uh, 
That'll have some of my colleagues going, oh, yeah, he would say that. Um, uh, we will um, we will close for today. Frank Bongiorno, Maria Tavlaga, thanks so much for being with us on Democracy Sausage. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Maria. Thank you. And we'll look forward to that live event next week, Maria, um, at the on the ANU campus. And uh, as I say to, to those of you listening, if you want to come along, if you're in the Canberra region, please do so. It's a, It's a lot of fun. Uh, and uh, in the last week of the election campaign, where else would you rather be? Come for a sausage, stay for the field pinions. <laughs> <laughs> Bye for now. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.